So I want to speak today about a different kind of king. I'm going to talk about Queen Elizabeth, Hamilton and Jesus. Over the weekend, I went to the country, to Donald, about three hours from here, uh, to visit my nan. And Nan lives in a nursing home and um, she's got a fair bit of hearing troubles and she's got dementia. And every time we go up to see her, her hearing troubles and her dementia gets worse. And so it changes the way we interact uh, each time we hang out. Um, So this time there was less sort of back and forward conversations and more uh, spending like, you know, a good four minutes trying to build up to the one thing you want to tell Nan. Um, and Jess came up with this idea yesterday that we should do the super quiz in the newspaper. It might get um, Nan's mind going. And it, it, it worked pretty well. Um, she was a bit confused. You know, we asked her, there was a song about a band from the 1960s, and she somehow referenced the Beatles from that, which makes sense. And then she started to try and tell us that she once saw maybe the Beatles in Bendigo, and it was news to me that the Beatles played in Bendigo, but it wasn't, it wasn't the Beatles. But anyway, she was, she was doing okay, but she wasn't beating me. Um, I was smashing her at the super quiz. And it got to a question, though, about the royals. And my nan's brain just was like she was 25 again. When, when a question about the royals came up, she could tell us exactly how many children... Queen Victoria I and her husband, I believe, like Prince Andrew or something, had. She just knew that information, could recall it straight away because my nan loves the royals. She's so into them. It's an interest, a passion. You know, she'll, she'll read the Woman's Day Guide to a new royal wedding, a royal birth. I think we even got her the Woman's Day Guide to the royal visit to Australia when Harry and Meghan came to Australia. There was a commemorative edition of Woman's Day read every, read every um, picture. It's mainly pictures, but she, she read all the pictures. She loves the royals. And in many ways, the, the royal family of the United Kingdom is, is more significant today because of celebrity than anything else. Their authority um, doesn't seem to be um, significant as much. It's, it's perhaps a little bit arbitrary. Um, that hasn't always been the case. England, uh, we're a very powerful nation. We have an English service. Um, here, we're, we're speaking English now, which you know goes to show the, the authority that, that England have and the power that they've held once. Which brings me to Hamilton. Now, who knows about Hamilton? Hamilton, that's the royal family. Hamilton is a wildly popular musical. Um, it's a hip-hop musical, which was, was first on Broadway um, in 2015, and it won lots of awards. I was obsessed with Hamilton for a while. I even um, wrote parody songs, Hamilton parody songs, which um, open your mountain to PJ, go all the way. It's all good. I wrote Hamilton parody songs that, that formed the, the crucible of my proposal when I got engaged. That's how obsessed with Hamilton I was. It's a bit embarrassing now, but... In the story of Hamilton, the English are represented by King George. Hamilton's the story of um, America's independence from Britain. And I was, I was on YouTube recently, and in my recommended um, videos was a Steph Curry um, carpool karaoke with his daughters. And it was, in the end, just an ad for a car that he was driving. 
But in this video, Steph Curry and his daughters sing this song from Hamilton, You'll Be Back. And it's, it's the song that King George, the, the British king, sings in, in the, the musical. And what he's saying in this song is he's saying, you might be trying to win your independence, become an independent nation, but you'll be back. You'll come crawling back and want to be under my authority. And, and this is the, the big first three um, from the, the Hamilton sing-along that Curry, um, the Curry family sing. That's King George, played by Jonathan Groff. And he sings, You'll be back like before. I will fight the fight and win the war. For your love, for your praise, and I'll love you till my dying days. When you're gone, I'll go mad. So don't throw away this thing we had. Because when push comes to shove, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Da 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 da. And he goes into his little Broadway bit. But um, I will kill your friends and family to remind you of my love. Most kingdoms actually work like that. That you've got to kill to be king. That you've got to kill to reign. To assert your power, you must have military might and victory and kill by the sword or the cannon or whatever it is. But Jesus' victory as king doesn't come from killing his enemies but dying for them. He is a radically different kind of king. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He reigns from a tree. So I want to say two things about this story in John chapter 19. <coughs> Excuse me. That Jesus reigns from a tree, that he's king on the cross, and how Jesus reigns from his tree. What does he do as king on the cross? This chapter is glorious. If you've got it, um, keep it open or open up your, your phones or whatever it is because I, I want to look through it. It's often called the Passion of Christ. And, and it begins, we have Pilate trying to get Jesus off his charges, but the crowds cheer, crucify him. And Pilate acquiesces to the crowd, and shockingly, the Jewish leaders, they blaspheme their God, and they say, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus carries his own cross, he's crucified. If you look at verse 17, it's actually a, quite a reserved um, explanation of the events of Jesus' crucifixion. It simply says, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. So you have these preparatory verses which ramp up to Jesus' death, and then you have these preceding moments which are record recorded afterwards. And at the royal centre, there's three compact verses which recount Jesus' final words and final deeds. Verses 28 to 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, after this, um, 
there's this touching scene where Nicodemus, Nicodemus from John chapter 3, Nicodemus from God so loved the world, Nicodemus from the very start of this gospel, Nicodemus appears again. And Nicodemus and a secret disciple named Joseph give Jesus an honourable burial after his humiliating death. It's an amazing, amazing chapter. We've got Jews and Gentiles. We've got humiliation and exaltation. This scene is so human in many ways, yet so divine. In a poetic commentary on on this chapter, St. Augustine had this to say. I just thought this was so, so moving that I put it in. He said, The Magi were from the Gentiles. Pilate too was a Gentile. The Magi, you see, had come from the east. Pilate from the west. So the Magi bore witness to the king of the Jews rising, that is, to his being born. Pilate bore witness to the king of the Jews setting, that is, to his dying. The whole story of Jesus climaxes here. He dies. After all of this, after his birth, after his life, after his love, Jesus dies. But he dies as a king. A different kind of king. Jesus is king on the cross. He's crowned in his death. Look at the text with me. Verse verse 2 and 3. Jesus is a king. He has a crown and a robe. He's hailed king of the Jews. Look down to verse 14 with me. He's presented to the Jews as king. So he's presented as king. If you look at verse 19, he has a sign above his head which reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And it's written in three languages. So all may know he's he's crowned near the city so that many may see, it says. He's king. Yet his crown is made of thorns. His robe is a joke. He's hailed as a mock. He's presented to the Jews, but they respond yelling, crucify him. The sign above his head is actually nailed to a cross on which he hangs. And the reason that he's near the city, not in the city, is because he's being murdered and it would be inappropriate to do that in the city. Now, through the Gospel of John, there's been many accidental truths where people don't realise the significance of what they're doing, but God is at work behind the scenes. If you remember, um, we had Mary accidentally, unrealisingly, anoint Jesus for burial with perfume. We had Caiaphas, the high priest, accidentally, unwittingly, prophesy the purpose of Jesus' death, that one man should die for the people. And here, in perhaps the most significant of all, Jesus is crowned, coronated, exalted as king on the cross. His humiliation is actually his exaltation. It's an upside-down kingdom here. He reigns from a tree and is a different kind of king. 
So this moment is his enthronement, if you like. When Pilate put that sign above his head, it's like the first written gospel announcement. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, murdered. It's good news. It's Good Friday, we call it. And it's written, it says, in, it says in the text, it's written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek, so that many might read it, but also because Jesus is not only crowned King of the Jews, he's crowned King of the world here. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, When I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And the Jewish people were actually God's representative people to the world. God so loved the world, so he chose the Jews to be mediators of that love to the world. And now the Jewish king reigns over everything in his death. It's crazy. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down message. It's an upside-down gospel. So Jesus reigns as king on the cross. But what does he do as he reigns? It's, it's great to know that he's the king. It's great to know that he's king on the cross. But what does he do as king? Is this just like Queen Elizabeth who sort of sits there, looks pretty, gives a Christmas speech? Or is, it, is there something more going on? Well, he's not only a suffering king. He's not only a suffering servant. He's also a sacrificial saviour king. What he does while he reigns is rescue and save. He's a new kind of king, but he's also a new kind of sacrificial Passover lamb. Look at verse 14 with me. What does it say? It says, It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. It's important that Jesus dies at this very time, at Passover. Because his death is one of sacrificial rescue. Every Passover, a lamb would be sacrificed to remember that God rescued his people from from Egyptian slavery. God rescued his people out of oppression. He passed over his people. He rescued them. And so every Passover, a lamb was sacrificed. Now, if you go all the way back to John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus and he said, Look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the sacrificial Passover Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is the hour which the whole gospel has been building towards. It's enthronement and atonement. Jesus dies to take away the sins of the world. God is the giver and the bringer of life. Sin, sin is the destroyer of life and a separation from the source. Jesus dies so we might have life, so we might be reconnected to the source of life. And in in John's Gospel, The strange kingdom of God is is not called the kingdom of God, it's called life. Zoe. Life. It's an upside down kingdom of life. He died so we might live. 
from the cross, he, he unites his mother and his beloved disciple. And he says, take my mum into your home. He creates a new family. From the cross spills blood and water, forgiveness and the spirit. From the cross he bows his head. He gives himself up as a gift. Most kings kill to be king. They take life so they might have power. Jesus dies to be king. He uses his power to give life. And then when all his work is done, he says, it is finished. So Jesus is a suffering servant king. And he's a sacrificial saviour king. But what does this mean for us today? Well, my nan, she's into the queen, but I'm not too sure if most of our generation are as passionate about Queen Lizzie as she is. Um, I think most of our generation view her as old-fashioned, maybe a bit irrelevant. Much of um, the secular world views Jesus that way, old-fashioned, a bit irrelevant, a symbol of ages past. But I wonder if sometimes we can live as if Jesus is a bit old-fashioned and irrelevant too. Like that he's part of our life, but part of the religious part of our life. We don't need to, to make him relevant though, because he is relevant. He is the king of the world. He is the bringer and the giver of life, the forgiver of sins, connecting us with the very source of life. I I believe that we, our generation, that we are really hungry for for deep, true life that Jesus brings. But so often today we skim the surface of life, like a jet ski, skimming from activity to activity, entertaining ourselves numb. Netflix is in a a battle for sleep or a battle against sleep, and Netflix is winning. That's what the CEO said. Their main competitor is sleep. I know it's illegal, but like, how many of us check our phones at a red light? As if like, five seconds of silence is too much. Or we get out of the car, and we're like on our phone as we walk. It's becoming like a, a hazard. I almost walked into a pole the other day. Can't even walk. Just skimming the surface of life. Distraction, entertainment, all like good things, but not distractions, not a good thing, but entertainment, activities, great things, but, but we can skim over the ocean like a jet ski without going deep because there's so many options, so many things, so much stuff. We can be numb to to the depths of life. Never bored, never silent, rarely deep. And yet, you know, we're the most entertained generation and yet the most isolated. The loneliness rates, the, the mental health crisis. I was listening to um, Dave Chang. Does anyone know Dave Chang? Ugly Delicious? Netflix? He's a good restaurateur from America and he's got this podcast and he talks about mental health and he, he calls it 
uh, a cancer of the soul, a spiritual cancer. He's not a Christian, but the crisis of mental health actually is is a problem of, of numbness to the life that is on offer. And some other things. It's not to say that that you have Jesus, you'll never have issues, or you have Jesus, you'll never have mental health problems, but a lot of what's going on is that we haven't plumbed the depths of the life that's on offer to us. And yet we don't need to plumb the depths because he has plumbed the depths. He has died on the cross. He reigns from a tree and he wants to meet us in the ocean of our pains and our longings. If he's a king on a cross, if his crown is a crown of thorns, if his robe is is a robe of mocking, if his praise is a praise that's just a joke, then why wouldn't that king want to give us life in our pain when we're feeling mocked, when we're feeling alone? He wants to meet us in the tender, painful, deep parts of our lives. We don't need to try and elevate Jesus to, to a competitor for cons- consumption. We don't need to elevate him and say he has to be um, equal in our entertainment. It's not making Jesus an equal product or equal entertainment. It's that Jesus is Lord and King over everything. He's the giver of life through the cross, through death. And the life that the suffering servant, sacrificial saviour king offers is like nothing else. So some say Jesus is irrelevant, like the Queen. Others might say he's more like King George from Hamilton or from history as well. He was real. That religion and Jesus is oppressive. That saying he's king of the world is, is a bit authoritarian. Now religion has been used for ill in history. But Jesus died to give life. Jesus is a different kind of king. He offers true freedom from the tyranny, from the empire of image, from the tyranny of performance, from from the, the kingdom of success and from the kingdom of sex. You know, the most successful revolution, I heard, the most successful revolution of the 20th century was the sexual revolution. It reigns supreme. And yet it's left many of us, the children of the sexual revolution, disillusioned, in pain. Jesus offers freedom from all the tyrannies, from the powers and principalities of the age. And what if the waters that we swim in are actually oppressing our humanity, not offering us life, but demanding from us an allegiance? What if we're bound by expectations on how we look, what we do, who we are, how we present, how we perform? And this is not just in the world. What if we feel bound in the church by the performance we need to to do for God? that we've got to be a good Christian, that we've got to nail our Bible reading, that we've got to get the right answers, that if we don't know the right stuff, that if we don't do the right things, that we won't be enough. 
Jesus' final words from the cross are not, come on, Alan. Jesus doesn't say from the cross, come on, Pam. Come on, Jackie. Come on, Winnie. Jesus' final words from the cross are, it is finished. It's done. He's freed you. His road is narrow, but his burden is light. And his gift is life. You know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he's Lord of all, that he's King of the world. But this is not a kingdom of oppression. It's an invitation to come, follow me, to trust, to relax into me, to believe into me, to entrust your life into the arms of the King and find forgiveness, freedom and life everlasting. Jesus is inviting you to trust him with your life, to believe into him, to find forgiveness, freedom and life everlasting in him. If that's something that you would like to do now, let's all just close our eyes. If you'd like to entrust your life to the king who gives life through his death, And you can do that now. And you can just pray along with me. Jesus, I've fallen short. I've sinned. I'm not worthy of life everlasting. And yet you love me and I thank you and I choose to believe in you and follow you and give you my life. Amen. If, if you pray that prayer for the first time, Chat to me. If you've prayed that prayer before and you're a follower of Jesus, then, or if, you've, if you're now a follower of Jesus, then you're invited to, to rehearse this story, to remember this story by coming in and taking part in communion. And what we do in communion is um, break a piece of bread and, and often pass it to a friend, a member of the family, and, and pour some grape juice and drinker. And what we're doing that when we do that is we're drinking grape juice to remember that the blood of Christ is is now in us and has marked us. And when we eat the bread, we're remembering that the body of Christ was broken for us and is now in us. And we take his life and take his death into us. And so why don't you just stand up now and and if you're a follower of Jesus, then then come and be a part of that. Um, just pour yourself some wine, grab a piece of bread. You can do it in your own time, whenever you like. lost but he brought me in all his love for me all his love for me through the sunset stream oh it's free I'm a child of yes 
past he has ransomed his grace surrounds While I was a safety son, Jesus died Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done, for who you are, for how you reign, for the life.